Hello all, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare bedroom cat interfering, because I'm no doubt that you'll be able to hear his bloody little bell at some point if you're listening. One person true crime podcast focusing upon the lesser known, often obscure cases, both solved and unsolved ones, from the dark corners of the UK and Ireland. Seeking these out for your listening is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It means the world as ever having you enthusiasts back here with me for another tale. And I'm hoping that as you join me today, each of you and yours are all good and well. So firstly, massive thanks to everyone who's gotten in touch to feedback concerning the previous episode that was written by Jackie Broderick, Evil Elin Vicarage. It's a remarkable tale, that one, isn't it? I know the events described were horrific and pure evil, don't get me wrong, but what an inspirational lady Jill was for her tireless work, that's personally what I choose to take from the episode. So many thanks to Jackie once again for her efforts there. Now there'll be another listener penned episode in a few weeks here on the show, as I have an offering from friend of the show Julia Crane coming up. Now these are fast becoming a series tradition and I'm so happy about that because Julia's last tale for the show is one of my favourite tales that I've ever presented on The Enthusiast, The Feathers and the Golden Flute from last series. Check it out if you haven't heard it yet, it's an amazing story. And I'm always open, should any of you guys have a case in mind you'd think a good fit for the show, then please suggest a way. Perhaps I've got it earmarked, perhaps I've never come across it. But if you want to research and write it up for a future episode, then you get my undying thanks and you get a few true crime enthusiast goodies to go with it. I'd like to thank also this week both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs going to Ailish Harris, Lucy Helica, Shelley McGonagall, Catherine Spencer-Cook, Melissa Small, Barbara, Tabitha Spence, Gabrielle Turnbull, Kate Much, Rob Kay, Richard Hadfield, Dana L. Tennan, Julia Harper and Pam Kitchens who's increased the pledge. You kind folks rule so much that you should have measurements written all over you. Now stuff's gone out to some of you which I hope finds you sooner rather than later. And there are of course I think 18 unreleased bonus episodes that you've had to be able to listen to. With bonus episode number 30, Sanctuary, having dropped just a couple of days ago. Now if you want to be like these guys and you fancy supporting the show for some extra episodes or you want some gizzits, then you're more likely to find a Jeffrey Epstein fan club than run into any confusion whilst you're doing so. It's just the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. You can't miss it, it's the show logo. Or the link is as ever with the episode show notes right alongside the link to the show's Macmillan Cancer Support fundraising page which is still running, should you wish to donate to that also. Hint, hint there. Now we're at 70% of the target total for that, so thanks so much to all who've donated. Some have have kindly donated multiple times, and you know who you are. Big love out, guys. Thank you so much. So this time around then on The Enthusiast, early last series I did an episode called Letters from a Fan, where we looked at the case of an annoying little parasite called Jeremy Dyer who made newsreader Sarah Lockett's life a misery with his stalking of her, sending her letters and unwanted gifts galore, turning up at the TV studios where she worked, just constant harassment. Now although Dyer's correspondence to her was weird and creepy, when he was finally taken to court and imprisoned, it did put a stop to it. 
It's explained better back in that episode if you've not heard it already. Now I don't really need to introduce what stalking is, do I? I'm not teaching anyone to suck eggs at all. But what if imprisonment doesn't stop it? What if someone is so hell-bent on ruining someone's life that being locked up won't stop it at all? It just serves to strengthen that hatred further. For this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we'll meet a woman named Tracy Morgan who knows what that means better than anybody. Tracy has for more than 25 years now campaigned furiously for the rights of victims of stalking, to get increased protection for them, and to see stalking more widely recognised for the menace and the very real threat that it is. Her work has been tireless, and working in conjunction with such organisations as the Susie Lamplew Trust, she spearheaded several campaigns that have brought about real changes in the law concerning stalking and harassment. She's been the founder of a charity, Network for Surviving Stalking, has sat on and chaired many victim support groups and advisory panels, and is an experienced media interviewee, speaker and trainer on the stalking issue. Now it is something that Tracy's passionate about, and it's the kind of passion that can only be born from experience. For Tracy was herself for many years the victim of a stalker who was so relentless in his campaign against her that he was to even be labelled Britain's worst stalker, and not even imprisonment would deter him. Her story, although it's shocking, is quite a remarkable one, and in part is told in her own words here, because who can better express the horror of the story than Tracy herself? The episode does contain details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, guys, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for this episode, we look back at a case I've simply entitled, Stalker. Back in 1992, ex-beauty queen, 24-year-old Tracy Sant, as she was at the time, had been happily married to her husband Andy, a computer company project manager, for three years, and the couple were on the verge of starting a family. They had a nice home in the Hampshire town of Gosport, and Tracy had a good job as a PA to a commander in the Royal Navy, based at HMS Collingwood, a stone frigate in the Hampshire town of Fairham, that's Western Europe's largest naval training facility. As a civilian administrator in a predominantly military establishment, Tracy had to rapidly learn to understand and appreciate the force's work ethic and atmosphere, and although she was naturally a shy person, the kind-hearted nature soon made her popular and well-liked amongst the training staff. It was this kind-hearted nature that led Tracy to take pity on 32-year-old naval petty officer Anthony Burstow, a submariner who'd been transferred to the base in July of that year. He seemed to be a bit of a solitary figure, a loner who didn't seem to have any friends, and although he was married, also to a woman named Tracy, who was another serving naval wren, she was stationed in Hong Kong, where she spent most of the year. Loneliness and a long-distance relationship had perhaps made Burstow depressed, as he always seemed to be, and Tracy saw nothing wrong with giving him a shoulder to cry on, being someone to listen as he poured out his troubles to her. She tried to include him in the office life, would invite him out with her at lunchtime when she went into town for a sandwich, and she and her husband Andy even invited Burstow out with them for a social evening on a couple of occasions. 
However, try as they both might, they didn't seem to be able to shake Burstow out of the doldrums at what at times seemed almost a suicidal black cloud. They encouraged him to get out to try and make some other friends and try some new pursuits. Now unbeknownst to them, Burstow was developing a pursuit, one that would send Tracy to the edge of her own sanity and cost her so dearly. Because the innocent friendship that Tracy believed was helping him was, was ever only a gesture, a helping hand, had rapidly transformed in his mind into something else. Whilst he'd initially reciprocated the friendship of Tracy and Andy, Burstow mistakenly believed that this gesture of kindness from Tracy meant that she and him were teetering on the brink of a relationship of sorts. Now this wasn't true. Categorically, Tracy was happily married and had never signalled to Burstow that she was interested in him in an illicit way. But regardless, there was a rapid transition and his behaviour changed from that of a lonely yet friendly soul to a malevolent mind whose behaviour was unwarranted, hateful, and who Tracy soon came to believe was intent on doing her harm. She at first began to notice that she seemed to bump into Anthony Burstow quite often, not just in work. If she attended her evening classes at Fairham College, he'd be there or he'd pass by. If she went to her aerobics class, where she collected a friend from some miles away who went with her, guess who'd be there on her friend's estate. The first couple of times, with perhaps her not wanting to think the worst, it was put down to pure coincidence. And consequently, when Tracy one morning had a flat tyre, she had no qualms about letting a helpful Burstow take her car keys after offering to take the car to get the tyre fixed. But she soon had to face up to the realisation that it wasn't coincidence when each morning she'd notice Burstow's car in her rearview mirror, driving right behind her as she was driving to work, despite him living several miles away from her as well as him constantly being at the college or aerobics classes. In fact, wherever she seemed to go, he'd be there. When he began following her home and was constantly outside the house of an evening, Tracy, just trying to do the best and defuse a potential situation, one evening approached Burstow in his car and asked him politely but firmly why he was following her and could he stop. He promptly told her that it was none of her business and drove off. The following day in work, Burstow blanked Tracy whenever she saw him, and although she was dismayed at an atmosphere that had now been created, she was at least relieved that she'd addressed and dealt with what was for her becoming an uncomfortable situation. Except that she hadn't dealt with it at all. That evening, she noticed Burstow outside her house again, although he drove off when he was spotted. It was the same evening that the silent telephone calls began, several of them going on into the early hours. The following morning, he was again behind her as she drove to work and was again that evening witnessed driving past the house several times. And then Tracy began noticing little things at home that didn't seem right, little changes that neither she nor Andy remembered making. Things would be moved around and misplaced, or stuff went missing. For example, a treacle tart that was in the couple's fridge vanished, with both Tracy and Andy thinking that the other had had it. Next, during a squabble over some trivial task or errand that hadn't been done, Andy told Tracy that he'd phoned home and left a message for her on the answering machine, asking her to do so. Yet when Tracy had arrived home, 
No messages were showing on the machine. She assumed that it was just broken, but sure enough, when she rewound the tape and checked, the message from Andrew was clearly there. Then she noticed they were only getting a trickle of post, nothing at all through the week apart from the odd item on a weekend. But the most unnerving thing occurred when Tracy went to take a contraceptive pill one evening, only to find the last three pills in the strip missing, and by that time she thought, I'm overdosing on them, trying to stay extra safe. Am I going mad? And this thought wasn't helped when the following morning, she went into work to find the missing three pills on her desk, two on her desktop, and one of them was even in her mug. Now the pill is surely the kind of thing that's left at home in the bathroom, isn't it? And even if they were in Tracy's bag, how does one get into your coffee cup unless they're deliberately placed there? And if they aren't in your bag, then how do they get from home? Now little psychological drip, drip, drips like this soon became intolerable and Tracy grew fearful, worried about her safety and helpless. Things like this were, as far as she was concerned then, only what happened in films. In the end, the only conclusion that she could come to was that Burster had developed a dangerous obsession with her and after much soul searching, and when she'd built the courage up to, she made a formal complaint about him to her bosses. Now this was to be just the first of several battles that Tracy would find herself having with authority and in the majority of these, it's disgraceful to say that Tracy would find herself alone, believed to be, and I quote here, an emotionally insecure female who needed to just be mature about it. Isn't that unreal, isn't it, eh? Tracy was to recall later, I wasn't taken seriously. If I'd been in the Navy, it would probably have been a different matter. I was going in daily saying, he's followed me here, or this or that's happening. And I remember distinctly standing in the doorway of the officer's room saying, things have happened at home, and I don't know how to explain it, but I think he could have bugged the house. I was just laughed out of the office. I was a silly female who was getting over-emotional about things, and I was just patted on the head and told not to be paranoid. But I was right, he was bugging my house. She was right indeed, as she was to find out some time later. Now they did speak to Burstow about this, and had a word advising it best all around that he stay away from Tracy Sant. Following this first complaint, an extract from Tracy's diary was to show just how much a word from naval hierarchy wouldn't deter Burstow. It reads as follows. 21st of November 92, Saturday. PM, two phone calls, no one there. A little while later the doorbell rings a few times for long periods. Through spy hole I see it's Burstow. For some reason I feel terrified. Why is he here? He's been told to stay away from me. He's disobeying orders. I take the bread knife, I don't know why, and go upstairs and try ringing around friends, but no one is in. Later, when I reckon he's gone away, I get in the car and go for a drive, just to get out. On the first main road I drive along, he's coming the other way. I turn right into Carisbrook Road towards the house. He's following me. After a while he turns off. I then just drive for a while and eventually go home. About 20 minutes later, his car is in our close. Get through to Charlie Nunn, who comes around. Burstow's gone by then. 
Charlie puts me in my car and sends me to the rugby club to tell Andy what has happened in the last few days. I'd thought the problem would go away and didn't want to worry him. I tell him what's happened. Charlie rings Burstow's divisional officer to inform him of the happenings and he advises us that if he should come near, to call the police. When Tracy had complained constantly, the Navy kept insisting they were dealing with it, but nothing was done by them to check Burstow's behaviour, and it took Tracy forcefully saying that unless satisfactory action from naval bosses wasn't forthcoming, she would involve Hampshire police. Now forces bosses are never keen to air dirty laundry if they can help it, and eventually, in December 1992, Burstow was to receive a captain's warning and was moved to a different shore base, Stone Frigate HMS Excellent, which was all of just three miles away from HMS Collingwood. This did nothing to deter Burstow. If anything, it just further fanned the flames of his obsession with Tracy. Following him being transferred, Tracy began receiving post again, but when she did, it wasn't the welcome kind. She'd open packages to find blank messages, headache pills, pornography, all sorts of things. The calls would continue at all times of the day and night, and Burstow still seemed to be everywhere she went, as though he had some sort of sixth sense as to where she'd be at all times. She still tried to have faith in her employers and trusting them that the matter was being dealt with as they'd claimed, even after he'd been transferred, but all the while building ever closer to a breakdown caused by the constant stress and fear, for which at that point she was being prescribed sleeping pills. Eventually though, by January 1993, it became apparent to both Tracy and the Navy that they couldn't deal with the problem at an internal level and at last Hampshire police were contacted, where Tracy made what was to be a 17-page statement about Burstow's behaviour. When she came out of the police station following this, she spotted Burstow waiting by her car, and as a result, Anthony Burstow was arrested and taken to Gosport Police Station for interview. Detective Sergeant Linda Dawson was the officer tasked with interviewing Burstow, and recalled later whilst being interviewed for a television documentary, he came across as an intelligent, articulate man. It was only when you talked to him about Tracy and you saw the pattern of behaviours towards her that you realised there was something very wrong. It transpired from this interview that Burstow had his own idea of Tracy Sant. Whereas she tried to gently end their friendship, uncomfortable with the obvious infatuation he had with her, in his eyes, this was a young woman who'd been almost about to launch into an affair with him had led him on, had accepted his physical responses to her, and had then rejected him. He'd completely misread the signs, and this served only to fuel his obsession with her. Just three days after being cautioned and told to stay away from Tracy, he was arrested again after continuing to follow Tracy, was released, and then a few nights later, was arrested again after being caught near to a house at night. This led to the first of what was to be several court appearances for Burstow, and at which he was bound over to keep the peace for two years. Now, being told to keep the peace and be of good behaviour was like talking to a brick wall, because the only message that this passed to Burstow was if that was all that would happen to him, then the law was powerless to stop his campaign. However, 
His employers decided that they could no longer brush these activities under the carpet like they had been doing, and deciding to cut their losses, in February 1993, Burstow was to receive a dishonourable discharge from the Royal Navy due to, I quote, continuing confrontation with service or attitude to Mrs. Sant. When reports of this had filtered back to Hong Kong, it also led to Burstow's wife Tracy divorcing him. By that time, the marriage practically over anyway. Now, in Burstow's twisted mind, regardless that all of his losses, his wife, his career, were actually self-inflicted, instead, they could be laid squarely at the feet of just one person, Tracy Sant, and as a result, his already warped and disturbing communications towards her stepped up a gear and became ever more worrying. He would still maintain a constant presence outside the Sant household, sat in his car watching for hours, and would follow Tracy constantly, yet whenever police would arrive, Burstow would be long gone. It later transpired that he used an electronic scanner to listen in to police messages. The silent phone calls continued, now even more frequently, but now Tracy also began finding notes left underneath the windscreen wipers of her car, containing disgusting venomous references towards her as well as receiving packages through the post containing all sorts of things, from the bizarre to the dreadful and disgusting. She'd receive all manner of items from headache pills to sanitary towels, accompanied by the constant mail of either blank messages or weird messages such as you are always on my mind, biblical references and quotes referring to the devil or 666, or quotes from artists such as William Blake, and one letter which ominously began. Unfortunately for all concerned, the final chapter is yet to be written. Shit like this, simply designed to unnerve or frighten. And it worked. Tracy became, in effect, a prisoner in her own home as a result of this, to the extent where in the evenings she would keep all of her curtains shut and have every light in the house blazing. She described later that this was because... So if he had a gun, he wouldn't know which room I was in, he wouldn't know which to aim at. Poor woman. Now, I would hope that nobody listening has ever been in a situation like this, or ever placed in such a level of fear as that. If you have, my heart goes out to you, because that's just horrendous, isn't it? To actually be in such fear that you're left constantly thinking someone is out to kill you, and it could happen at any time, that's just, that's just awful. Understandably, Tracy's husband Andrew was also feeling the strain of Burstow's campaign. He felt unable to protect his wife and unsure exactly what to do, at first trying to do nothing to provoke Burstow, hoping that by trying to ignore the abuse, Burstow would see that it was having no effect, even though it clearly was, and would cease. He was also aware that as Tracy's husband, he was at some level of risk himself, and finally pushed to his limits. He once physically confronted Burstow, giving him a bit of a shoo-in, and when he was physically on the ground, telling him in no uncertain terms that he should stay away from their home, to leave Tracy alone, and to stay out of their lives. Burstow, who was on the floor huddled up for protection, replied, I'll give it some consideration. Good of you that, isn't it? Now the assault wasn't reported by Burstow, well really, what could he say? This fella whose wife I'm stalking, 
he lamped me one when I was hanging about for hours outside. No, dream on. But needless to say, it didn't stop Burstow for a second. By August 1993, after the Sants had suffered some nine months of Burstow's hateful campaign, it was decided with their police liaison officer, Detective Sergeant Dawson, that the Gosport home should be covered with surveillance cameras. This was duly done, and it wasn't long before Burstow was captured on film lurking about outside their house. However, just by being on a public street, although he wasn't obviously there for the good of his health, he was committing no crime. The cameras did prove their worth when a clear image was captured one evening in September 1993 of Burstow pouring a solution all over Tracy's car. Some accounts claim it to be oil, whilst others claim it was a corrosive solvent. Whatever it was, it caused considerable damage to the vehicle, and Burstow could clearly be identified as the individual inflicting the damage. This was tangible evidence, and an undeniable charge of criminal damage could now be brought against him, so Burstow was duly arrested and bailed upon the condition that he lived with his father in the market town of Hythe in Kent. Ignoring the conditions of his bail, just two days later, an extract from Tracy's diary reads as follows. 8th of September 1993 7.55 I got out of my car at the Carisbrook shops to collect the paper. I see Burstow standing at the end of the row of shops watching me. I continue walking into the newsagents and ask Mr Patel, the owner, to ring 999 as I just didn't know why he was being so blatantly obvious knowing he shouldn't be in the area as his bail condition stated. I wait in the shop until a policeman arrives. He then takes my details and asks me to accompany him up to where Burstow had been standing. We do this and carry on around the back of the shops and back into the car park, where I see a flash of maroon dart down an alley. We run down the alley and turn right into another alley, and up ahead is Burstow just strolling along with a bottle of water as if nothing is wrong. I wait and watch while Burstow is arrested. The policeman and Burstow start walking towards me, so I just run back into the paper shop and wait a short time until I think the coast is clear. 9 o'clock. Eventually getting to work. When the mail arrives a short time later, there's an envelope addressed to the department which I'm suspicious of. I open it carefully and find three copies of a crossword, which upon reading the clues, most I recognise as being personal details relating to myself and my family, as well as Andy's family. They are each addressed to Charlie, Jim and Kev, colleagues of Tracy at the time. Charlie accompanies me to take them to the police. Can't take any more. See two counsellors and go to the doctors for more sleeping tablets to make me feel better. Now the crossword in question was entitled Final Term Mind Game and which not only demonstrated just how obsessed Burstow was, but how much he knew that the effect he was having on Tracy, who scared out of her wit, would actually take the trouble to solve the clues to find out what lay behind them, concerned that if she ignored it, she may miss some sort of warning from Burstow about where or how he would strike at her next. And the answers to it showed the extent that Burstow had penetrated her life, because every single answer was some reference to an aspect of Tracy's life or that of her loved ones and family. It contained all sorts of intimate details about her, Andrew and their families, 
Details such as her national insurance number, both her and Andrew's vehicle registration numbers, intimate details about her family, and references to Burstow's stalking of her were all clues. One clue called Burstow the Hunter, while Tracy was referred to as the Prey. Can you imagine that? Hey, that's unreal, isn't it? Because he'd ignored the conditions of his bail, Burstow was rearrested, and during the time that he was in custody being questioned before being remanded to Winchester Prison, Burstow was to come out with some shocking revelations, and what I think most likely myself was a chance to crow about the power that he was holding over the couple. He asked to speak to Detective Sergeant Linda Dawson in private, off the record, no tape recorded interview, no caution, to which she agreed, and consequently, Burstow admitted that he'd been thinking about killing Andrew Sant. Yet no charges could be brought against him for this shocking, frightening revelation. It had been said off the record without caution, plus there was no evidence to suggest this, and Burstow could just as easily claim that the conversation had never taken place. So even though the police had known it before, there was no doubt here that they were dealing with an extremely dangerous, hell-bent and obsessive individual, one who was quite happy to play this dangerous game and to tell police as such, knowing that there was little they could do. Now while Burstow was remanded in custody awaiting trial for the damage to Tracy's car, Tracy should have had some respite from him, but there was none of this. Yeah, okay, he couldn't be there in person following her around, but letters still arrived from the prison he was being held in, hateful items that seemed to arrive every time the post he called. A prime example is a letter that he sent Tracy, which had three crudely drawn coffins depicted at the bottom of the page, two of them labelled with A's and another with a T. It had only one meaning. Burstow wanted Tracy and her husband dead, and he didn't care if it cost him his own life in the process of achieving it. When he was sentenced to six months' imprisonment for the criminal damage to Tracy's car in September 1993, a psychiatric assessment on Burstow was requested by the court, but the surprising result of this was that he wasn't considered to be suffering with either a mental illness or a personality disorder. Putting it bluntly, the examining medical experts claimed that Burstow's continued harassment of the Sants was simply a case of someone who needed to wash the woman out of his hair. Now speaking following this, Tracy describes how outraged she was at the time. They didn't know what they were dealing with. For people to just dismiss it and say that I've got to pull myself together and ignore what he's doing. How dare they? They want to come and live in my house for a week and see what it really feels like. Bloody right they do indeed, eh? However, back in 1993, Tracy and Andrew had the promise of at least three months respite while Burstow was incarcerated. That was likely his prison time. They were under no illusion that imprisonment would reform him and make him come to his senses, but at least he was physically prevented from approaching them or their property for a while. So taking advantage of this, on the 14th of October, they took themselves and their fraught nerves for a much-needed month's holiday in South Africa. That peace was short-lived, as Tracy was to later explain that police were waiting for them as they arrived home on the 10th of November 1993. It was strange adapting to a life where you didn't have to watch behind you. It was a bizarre experience. 
We had a lot of tension to get rid of, but we had a nice time. We came back, the police came around, the detective who had handled the case originally. He told us that Bursar had been released on appeal the very day after we left. Now at the time of Burstow's release, the detective hadn't been told of this, and consequently no one knew where Burstow was. But it was certain that wherever Tracy was, he wouldn't be far away, and out of serious concerns for her safety, it was arranged that Tracy was to receive a police escort to and from work the following day. She described later, After the detective left, I went to have a bath and clean my teeth, and I got wet feet at the sink. When I looked, there was water coming out of the cupboard under basin. Andy came up to look, then went downstairs to check the kitchen and found the same. The water pipe had been loosened. As I came downstairs, Andy went to the lounge window and pulled the curtain back. The pane of glass was missing. Burstow had burgled the house. Our wedding videos had gone. Photographs, jewellery, our video machine, personal items. The list goes on. An extract from Tracy's diary that day reads as follows. Returned from holiday well rested, although Andy and I had a lot of tension to get rid of. We realised we'd forgotten how to live a normal life and not worry about who was in the bushes or where we'd been followed. Now further on it reads. Another thing which broke my heart was that our wedding video was gone. We can easily get a copy, but that is ours and it has taken it and probably seen it with his grubby little eyes. We call the police. Linda comes out to take details and statements. Gives me a big hug. The window is boarded up and Andy will have to take the rest of the week off so the glass company, forensic and police can examine the place. We all know who's done it. When he was found and spoken to, which wasn't hard because he'd managed to rent a house just 500 yards from Tracy and Andy, Burstow claimed to know nothing about the break-in at the Sant's home, but it was easy enough to prove that his claims of innocence were nothing but an absolute shamble of bollocks. An audio cassette found in his car contained the soundtrack of the Sant's wedding, which was deemed enough evidence for police to order a fuller search of Burstow's home. Here, they found the missing items that had been taken from the break-in, along with items of Tracy's underwear, photographs of her and her family, journals containing details about both her and Andy's family and friends, a detailed diary of her movements, and most worryingly, a written account of Burstow's future intentions towards her. These were written in a combination of notebooks as well as on loose pieces of paper, and one very alarming reference referred to Tracy's upcoming birthday in January as Judgment Day. It began with the following. I appear to have sorted out how Judgment Day will be enacted. I'd rather it be an evening. A at home, tea away for a few hours. Sort out A and then enjoy some time alone waiting for T's return. And then... Now what came next wasn't written. But what kind of gives you an idea about it is that also found during the search of Burstow's home was a full medical blood transfusion kit and a quantity of syringes. How frightened would you be there, eh? When he was arrested for the burglary and questioned about these written notes... Burstow told police that Judgment Day wasn't a definite plan, it was simply him brainstorming. An extract from his police interview is as follows. 
There were a lot of times I was very annoyed about things and I would come up with stupid ideas of things to send to wind her up further and that was one of them. If I'd got out of prison and I'd stayed out November or December, I might have got around to doing something with that to muck around with her brain, that was all, as I've done ever since this all started. The interviewing officer then asks Burstow, you agree that's what you're doing? To which Burstow agrees, replying, that's what it's all about. The officer then retorts with, you're mucking yourself up and you're mucking, to which Burstow quickly interrupts with, I don't give a shit about myself. I wanted to muck around with her head. That's what all this is about. This campaign had now developed into full-blown mania, but now had the added danger, if there wasn't already enough, of having become a crusade. Burstow admitted as much to his probation officer. Already so blinkered that he blamed Tracy for destroying his marriage, his career, his home and life in general. Now nothing mattered to him more than achieving his desired aim, destroying hers in return. It was his sole focus and he wouldn't stop until he'd done so. And at the time, the law was helpless. Burstow's harassment of Tracy and Andrew Sant was not illegal in itself. He would always deny everything and would so continue to avoid serious charges because of lack of concrete evidence. What he could be done with, criminal damage, burglary, he was, but it didn't stop the obsession. All that could be done was to bring prosecutions on the minor counts that he could successfully be done for, and so he was imprisoned once again for the burglary, this time receiving an 18-month sentence in May 1994. But even with Burster once again behind bars, as we've already heard, this wouldn't stop him and all Tracy and Andrew could do was wait and see what his next move would be. And the evidence of his intentions continued turning up. For example, computer disks were found in his cell that when looked at, amongst other equally delightful ramblings, contained poems whose meaning was unequivocal. An example being, Fatal Attraction, The Message. Do not get involved with a woman you feel passionately about, but if you do, killer. No, I don't think Wordsworth or Tennyson has got much to worry about there really, do you? But they also contained the full details of Burstow's stalking campaign against the couple, as well as transcripts of conversations that Tracy and Andrew had had in their own home. Having previously had documents taken away and used in evidence against him, Burstow had now adapted the precaution of writing in code. Yet police were able to decipher enough that from information learned when the discs were decoded, it was revealed that his intentions towards Tracy at that point included sending his spiders, slugs and snails through the post. Delightfully. But Tracy and Andrew were more horrified to find out from these notes that at the beginning of his campaign of harassment, Burstow had planted electronic listening devices at Tracy's workplace, in the couple's sofa, even in the marital bed. He'd been privy to almost everything which had gone on in the couple's lives, all conversations between them and with their friends and family, somewhere nearby to the house, Burstow had been sat in his car listening in. The ones at their home had all been done during one of his visits to the house, enabled because on the day Burstow had taken Tracy's car tyre to be fixed, he had had copies made of her house keys that were on the same bunch. There was a written log of all the times he'd entered the Sant's house using this key that he'd had cut and a record of what he'd taken each time. Pretty chilling, eh? 
but not as chilling as the notes on the discs that suggested that from prison, Burstow had made tentative inquiries to take out a £3,500 contract on the life of Andrew Sant. In July 1994, Tracy and Andrew moved to a new house while Burstow was still incarcerated. An extreme length, but reportedly, one in ten people who were stalked will take such a measure. But the new safe house proved useless. For just ten days after they'd moved in and unpacked, they began to receive suspect mail, some addressed to Tracy's counsellor. Now somehow, and it's never been explained how, Burstow had managed to discover their new address. In his prison cell, they even found a ground floor plan of the new home. They'd forsworn having the mail redirected by the post office, preferring the time-consuming but safe option of making all the changes to addresses with banks and utilities themselves. So how much must that have crushed them that there was still no respite? I mean, it's not like you can move house every other day, is it? Ahead of Burstow's release from prison the following year, police installed surveillance cameras at the Sant's home, anticipating problems from him. Although upon release he was told to stay out of Hampshire and agreed that he would reside back at his father's address in Shepherd's Walk in the town of Hythe in Kent, just five hours after he was released from Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight, he was filmed outside the Sant's home, ignoring all of this. For the next six days he was spotted outside there, either driving or on foot, at all times of the day and night, and was one evening filmed disappearing into a neighbour's garden at midnight and reappearing about 40 minutes later. A desperate Tracy repeatedly called police when she'd checked the tape and seen this, and the following morning they drove by Burstow, witnessing him as he lay in wait for Tracy to go to work. Later that day, after he'd followed her once again to HMS Collingwood, he was then arrested outside the gates and charged with breach of the peace. Now sadly, this was to be the final straw for the Sant's marriage. The strain that it was buckling under finally could take no more. The efforts that Tracy was having to expend in order to stay sane in her everyday life were changing her as a person, one that Andrew Sant didn't recognise. She was to explain much later. Part of the reason that the marriage failed was not only the pressure, it was also the fact that I'd changed personality completely. Andy was fed up on my depression. I was often on a down and he couldn't cope with the sleeping pills or the Prozac. He couldn't cope with all the looking after me. When I got married, I was a quiet person and my husband got his own way most of the time, certainly with regards to sport. But then, for instance, he often used to play rugby, and I started to voice my objections when it seemed that another whole weekend was going to revolve around sport, before I would have just kept quiet for fear of making him unhappy. I don't think it would have headed that way but for Burstow. I think I would probably still be little Tracy, so shy and quiet, just carrying on with things. We were about to start a family as well. That might have been another factor. Andy couldn't cope. It didn't help that he didn't believe in counselling, but I became a fighter, and he didn't like that. He didn't like me anymore. Tracy and Andrew were ultimately to divorce in September 1996, after which both he and his family severed all contact with her. After the couple split, Tracy left her job at HMS Collingwood and moved back to her parents' house in the Berkshire town of Bracknell 
where she also began to undergo psychiatric treatment. A nervous wreck, she couldn't sleep without the lights on, she had to treble lock and triple check all doors and windows of an evening, she took to shredding her rubbish, she wouldn't even allow herself to wear vest tops, not wanting Burstow to even get a glimpse of her flesh. That's the state that this horrible twat had reduced her to. But his prey, moving more than a 100 miles away from where he lived, didn't deter Burstow in the slightest from his campaign, and now he began targeting Tracy's family also. They were still subject to his harassment and he became a daily presence in their lives, despite being ordered by the courts to stay away from her. The calls continued at her parents' house, reams of unsigned mail would arrive, along with bizarre and menacing packages, the Morgan family would awake to find their garden littered with condoms or sanitary towels. Offensive literature and pornography was posted through all of their neighbours' doors. And posters adorned the street where they lived, placed underneath the windscreen wipers of every car in the road, claiming, Tracy Sant is a stupid little bitch and a lying slut. Burstow also sent a letter to Tracy's new workplace, the Met Office in Bracknell, saying, Lady, a few words of advice. Never ever start something unless you intend to see it through to the bitter end and finish it. But the longer letters Burstow would send, and there were many of these, it was like the bloody blue piece of postbag, showed a much more malevolent skill at work. One such example read, Do you long for that new era when you can wake up in the morning and smile at the day it brings, be it work or rest, weekday or weekend? and not be concerned about the motives and plans of another. Sit at the breakfast table and discuss what lies ahead without fretting over the contents of your postbox, or agonising over possible untoward news from your father's short walk for the daily paper. Then mockingly, cruelly, the letter ended, Well, you can forget it. This is totally personal. Nothing will change how much I hate you. Now this continued well into 1995 and a diary entry dated the 20th of May 1995 gives yet another example of the abuse. It reads, Mum opened a BT envelope which had come in the mail. Inside was a malicious calls leaflet and a printout telling her that engaging mouth before brain will get her into trouble. Is it still a good game and hilarious? In brackets, he obviously doesn't like her laughing at him down the phone. I received two packages, but noticed that the name and address are in the same typewritten print as the BT envelope, so I put on the rubber gloves. Inside one is a printout asking if I miss my old life, and a reminder is enclosed. There are what looks like a whole film of photos of my house in Gosport, my aerobics class, several places we used to go, and others I've never been to. The note reads, Tracy, some visual reminders of your previous life. Enjoy the memories, they're all you have left. The other envelope contained a soiled sanitary towel wrapped inside a printout saying, Never trust anything that bleeds three to five days every month, but doesn't die. Message left for police. Now you can feel the absolute venom there, can't you? It's, that's horrific, it's just disgusting that, isn't it? And because he hadn't physically harmed Tracy at that time, he was breaking no laws. Now Burstow did eventually did break the law which the police were able to prove when he was filmed stealing underwear off the family's washing line for which he was then arrested. 
He denied this as he did with every other accusation that was made at him, even in the face of sometimes overwhelming, undeniable evidence, giving some ludicrous excuses. Like, for example, when Tracy launched civil proceedings against him in 1995, one excuse he used for one of his many silent telephone calls reads, With regard to paragraph 11 of the plaintiff's affidavit, I believe that I spoke to the plaintiff's mother on the 4th of June 1995 at work and at home. In fact, my recollection is that Mrs Morgan did most of the speaking and she told me, amongst other things, to drop dead. I telephoned again the following day, June the 5th, and on that occasion the plaintiff answered the telephone. I remained silent on this occasion because I'd been expecting Mrs Morgan, not the plaintiff, and was taken aback. I've already admitted this to the police. I deny making any other silent telephone calls. You believe the shit this guy comes out with or what, eh? An attempt had been made in February 1995 to up the charge of theft for the underwear off the line from the previous year and to charge Burster with actual bodily harm to the mind, psychiatric injury. Now no such charge had ever been successfully prosecuted before so it was a long shot and indeed it was ultimately to fail. But this latest letdown was to be a turning point in Tracy's attitude towards Burstow's aggression because she thought, enough is enough. She recalled later, I was lucky I had police officers on the case from day one that wanted to help me. When the case collapsed in February 1995, they were the ones who said to me, will you go public? We need to highlight the loophole in the legal system. We need a law because there's nothing. We can't protect you anymore. I had nothing left really, I thought, I've got nothing to lose, only my life. I had to get this stopped and we needed to highlight what was going on. The legal system had failed me. Tracy appeared on an ITV documentary highlighting her plight and the case hit the headlines with Burstow's harassment described in graphic details in the national press. And this provoked outrage at his catalogue of abuse but equally at the reluctance of the government to do anything to change the law, with them claiming it would present too many difficulties, an objection centred around any changes or codifying possibly impacting the legitimate activities of investigative journalists and recollection agencies. Now Tracy was not only let down by this, but was also concerned about the methods that she felt she'd been forced into. She was now becoming well-known and was appearing on television and on the radio and in newspapers advocating for a change in the law. And whilst it was good that the wider problem was now a talking point, she also considered the very real danger that by publicising his activity, was this giving Burstow exactly what he wanted? Or would it even spur him to step up his campaign further and inflict real physical harm upon her? She told the newspaper, He gets the notoriety. He's labelled in the media Britain's most notorious stalker. That's what these people feed off, the power, but also the fear. He likes to write to the police officers with stupid ideas, and his game now is to beat the legal system. It hasn't been his obsession with me for a long time. It was only initially me. As soon as he's told not to do something, he'll do it just to prove a point. And the way the legal system works allows him to do it. He has the rights and the privileges, he manipulates them and he gets away with it. 
Under the guidance of the Hampshire Police, in May 1995, Thames Valley Police began compiling evidence in an attempt to bring another charge of GBH, psychiatric injury, against Burstow, and this time it paid off. After amassing a wealth of evidence, documents and medical reports, on the 4th of March 1996, after six days of legal argument at Reading Crown Court, Anthony Burstow pleaded guilty at the last minute to inflicting grievous bodily harm upon Tracy Morgan between February the 19th and July the 27th 1995 and the following day was sentenced to three years imprisonment by Mr Justice Late. He was to appeal the verdict but it was refused on the 29th of July 1996. Now this was the first time such a charge had been successfully taken to court and Tracy had made legal history. It opened a bit of a floodgate, as Tracy explains. Two weeks after the case, we launched the campaign for a specific stalking law alongside ACC Wallace of Sussex Police and the Susie Lamplew Trust. People were asking why, when the GBH was so successful, we had to ask why a victim should become so psychologically damaged before any charges could be brought. Yes, of course, what utter bollocks that was. So a bill was proposed by Labour MP Janet Anderson, which was blocked in May of that year by the Conservative government. The bill that they discarded proposed the implementation of an enforced exclusion zone around the victim, the Storkey, and would have required the stalker to have received counselling. Persistent stalkers, looking at Burstow here, would have received a custodial sentence carrying a maximum of five years. Vampiric-looking then-Home Secretary Michael Howard, or something of the night as he's famously called by Anne Widdicombe, creepy-looking bastard, said that it had been too widely drawn and would criminalise many innocent activities. He maintained that stalking was a particularly difficult thing to define, so the government were loath to act before they were sure that they had a definition which was sufficiently workable to allow them to legislate it. Once they did, it would be game on. At the beginning of July 1996, a comprehensive response to the problem was announced, with the plans that were now suggested included, amongst other things, a civil measure that would allow the victims to take out an injunction against this stalker, carrying with it a sentence of up to five years for the criminal offence that breaching the said injunction would be. A new offence of Causing fear for a person's safety, whether or not this was the intention of the person charged, was also proposed, which too would carry with it a sentence of up to five years' imprisonment, plus an unlimited fine, or possibly both. Finally, causing harassment, alarm or distress, whether or not this was the intention, would carry a sentence of six months in jail, a £5,000 fine, or both. It was June 1997 before this bill, which became the Protection of Harassment Act, came into force, just 10 days before Anthony Burstow was released from Bullingham Prison in Oxfordshire on licence, having served less than half of his sentence. Judge Stanley Spence had ordered the charge to lie on file, and told a hearing at Reading Crown Court, I offer my great sympathy to Miss Morgan, who's found herself in a very difficult situation over many years. He then told Burstow, I want you to do nothing that will in any way impinge on the life of Miss Morgan in any adverse way. Under conditions of his licence, he was told not to enter Crowthorne or Bracknell and not to contact Tracy in any way 
before being bound over to keep the peace for the sum of £400, to which Burstow agreed. And for the remainder of that year, it seemed that Tracy was being left in peace finally. There were no calls or mail, and Burstow wasn't anywhere to be seen. Until the turn of the year, when the arrival of an unsigned birthday card for Tracy in January 1998 heralded a new onslaught of abuse. Tracy had by this time been in a relationship for two and a half years with a childhood friend, Tony Hurdle, and someone, no prizes for guessing who, one Sunday morning wedged dog excrement up underneath the door handle of Tony's car door, very carefully done so as it wasn't seen, it was just felt. Then Burstow resumed following Tracy about, driving up close behind her wherever she went, appearing back near her parents' house. His own vehicle became a mobile stalking base for his activities, complete with sleeping bag, changes of clothes, and more worrying items such as syringes and a full blood transfusion kit, as had been found in his possession before. In the woods behind where Tracy lived, a whole horde of documentation was found amassing detailed information on Tracy and her family, even down to records of their finances. It transpired that Burstow had been keeping constant surveillance on them since his release from prison, using public records to search out information about them, and the documents also made what was the second reference to Judgment Day. When Tracy spotted him outside her parents' home on the 22nd of January, she contacted police and Burstow was arrested once again, which meant he would resume his sentence for a breach of licence, or so they thought. He was actually released. He'd refused to sign the conditions of his license. For the last six months of his sentence, he'd refused to see or speak to his probation officer. And at the court hearing, because his probation officer didn't turn up, the court simply crossed the breach of prison license off the list of charges. It was eventually reinstated, but instead of custodial, Burstow was fined just £500. However, he had been charged with harassment and another count of GBH to the mind, although in August of that year the GBH charge was dropped. But the trial for the harassment charge took place in November 1998, where Burstow was found guilty but bailed to await sentencing. Yeah, I didn't understand that either. On the 4th of January 1999, he was back in court to be sentenced to 16 weeks imprisonment with Bracknell magistrates also issuing a restraining order against him, with strict orders not to enter Berkshire upon his release, and a ban from contacting Tracy and her family and friends, or holding paperwork relating to them. Now amazingly, just four days after the verdict, Burstow was to apply for bail pending appeal, and to change his bail conditions by saying that he was working for his father, who lived in Kent, but they had a pub refitting job to do in Slough, so in order to work, he would need to enter Berkshire. He also appealed both sentence and conviction, meaning a full retrial was held on the 22nd of January 1999, but both were upheld at this hearing, and Burstow was returned to prison, being released in March 1999. Now later that year, Tracy and Tony split. The couple had got together in the midst of Burstow's campaign in 1995, and were together for four years before splitting in August 1999, although they still remained friends. But it was in the last few months of 1999 that Tracy made yet another horrible discovery, one that showed the devious mind of Anthony Burstow. 
It was around this time that her story and her campaigning for changes in the law was featured in a Yorkshire television documentary where Anthony Burstow was named and identified as Britain's worst stalker. Now at that time he was working for a cleaning company and Burstow's then boss contacted the television company to verify that her employee was not the man on screen because he looked incredibly like him. A researcher, Rachel Chadwick, asked the woman to tell her more about her employee and the woman replied that her employee's name was Anthony Hurdle. Now what are the chances? Yes, exactly, there aren't. Burstow had changed his name and to continue messing with Tracy's head had changed it by deed poll to that of her ex-boyfriend. It was of course a deliberate challenge to the new laws for as part of the restraining order Anthony Burstow was banned from holding any paperwork relating to Tracy or any of her family or acquaintances but with his name now changed Tony Hurdle could acquire information with relative ease plus could now trespass into the area he was prohibited from, which protected Tracy. He could even show identification, which if he was stopped, would not arouse any suspicions. And it continued in this merry-go-round of misery, but now even affecting Tracy's extended family contacts. For example, her sister's boyfriend found that his bank account had been tampered with, the address had been changed, and other alterations had been made to his account. It would be enough to make you scream, wouldn't it? And then Burstow found himself a new target. Shortly after being released from his fourth prison sentence in connection with offences against Tracy, Burstow, or Hurdle by this time, had begun working for a cleaning company at Great Chart Primary School in Ashford in Kent under his new identity and had begun a relationship with a fellow worker named Lorraine Nicholson. Yet the relationship was to end when Lorraine one evening in August watched a TV documentary about stalking entitled I'll Be Watching You and her boyfriend's face popped up on screen as the shocking catalogue of his harassment against Tracy Morgan was laid out. When Lorraine asked him about it he said Oh yeah it's me that, whether he was proud of it or not, not sure. There wasn't much else he could say really was there. Freaked out beyond words as you would be wouldn't you? A horrified Lorraine ended the relationship there and then, but in the biggest case of deja vu ever, can you guess what Burstow, or Hurdle, did then? Of course he did, began stalking Lorraine. A similar catalogue of abuse as Tracy had received from him now began, the silent calls, the unwanted mail, he would constantly follow Lorraine and he was everywhere that she went, work, shopping, socially, everywhere. This went on for more than a year and by November 2000 he'd taken to contacting friends of Lorraine to abuse them also and on the 19th of that month sent a text message to a friend of Lorraine's saying Please tell Lorraine her game is over. No call today. I take over the process. Five days after this Lorraine was at home a nervous wreck constantly on edge exactly how Tracy had been when she noticed Burstow repeatedly driving past her house in the morning. About an hour later, the front doorbell rang, but Lorraine could see nobody through the frosted glass of the front door, so thinking it may have been a delivery driver leaving a parcel, she opened the door, only to find Burstow crouched down outside it below her view. He forced his way into the house and pulled a Stanley knife from out of his pocket, then locking the door behind him, 
he dragged Lorraine into the kitchen of her home and said to her, Look at these eyes, we will die together. He then attempted to strangle Lorraine, but fortunately, it was at that moment where her 17-year-old son, Bobby Grindley, returned home early to the shocking sight of Burstow attempting to strangle his mother. Trying the kitchen door and finding it locked, Bobby smashed the kitchen window to get in, just as Burstow put her left wrist on the draining board and told her, you are going before me, then slashed through it with his knife. So deep was the single wound Burstow inflicted that it severed every artery and vein in Lorraine's left arm. He then slashed his own wrist, and as he slumped to the floor, massively bleeding, Lorraine used her last remaining strength to dive through the kitchen window and then collapsed outside. It was only the immediate life-saving first aid that Bobby gave to his mother and the fact he'd swiftly contacted the emergency services that saved Lorraine's life. Her left hand was left practically hanging off, and although paramedics managed to save her hand, she was ultimately to lose the full use of it as a result of Burstow's attack, who also survived his suicide attempt. Charged with the attempted murder of Lorraine Nicholson, Burstow pleaded guilty when he appeared at Maidstone Crown Court on the 4th of July 2001, claiming that his crimes were committed because he couldn't cope with the end of his relationship. Prosecuting, Brian Higgs QC told the court the entire shocking story, how Burstow had begun stalking Lorraine when she'd ended their relationship much the same as he had Tracy, resulting in his murderous attack upon her the previous year. Sentencing Hurdle, Judge Andrew Patience told him, I have heard of another relationship you had with a woman called Tracy Sant leading to repeated appearances in court throughout the 1990s. It is clear to me that when relationships you form with women come to an end, you cannot accept it and you become obsessional. It remains possible in the future that were you free to form such relationships with women and they failed, you might become involved in similar behaviour. This is a wicked offence. It justifies a severe sentence to punish you and serve as a warning to others. You are a person of unstable character. This calls for a sentence that ensures protection for women from your behaviour. The catalogue of his relentless abuse of not just one, but now two women, almost resulting in the death of one of them, had finally caught up with him, for Anthony Burstow was then sentenced to life imprisonment. At a five-minute hearing on the 7th of September 2001, Burstow appeared to hear that it was the decision of the court that he would serve a minimum term of seven and a half years imprisonment before being considered for release. Lorraine Nicholson declined to comment following the verdict, reliving the process in court being so traumatic that his son had actually collapsed and had to be carried from court by police officers. But in an earlier interview, she had said, I will never forget the moment I saw that evil face on the television and heard he was Britain's worst stalker. I felt a dreadful chill. He made my life hell when I did finally end our relationship. I felt so trapped. Everywhere I went, I felt he was there watching me. Anthony Burstow, or Anthony Hurdle, remains incarcerated to this day. Although he's been eligible for parole for a number of years now, his attempts to secure release have always been refused, with his most recent reported attempt being in 2014. The reason? A psychiatric assessment of him concluded that if he were to be released, 
he would immediately return to the obsessive behaviour that led him to a life sentence. We've already heard how imprisonment doesn't deter him or give him time to reflect on the misery he causes and he feels absolutely no remorse whatsoever, only pleading guilty each time because he knows in the face of the amassed evidence proving his guilt, to deny it would just be laughable. He just can't be reached. And prison is undoubtedly the best place for him to be. Look how much he costs Tracy Morgan, pushing her to the edge of her sanity. Or Lorraine Nicholson, left without the use of one of her hands, indeed, almost losing her life at the hands of Burstow. All because of an obsessive nature that just doesn't diminish with him. Don't forget the terror and misery that Burstow can still inflict from a prison cell. He's proved this with Tracy. Out of prison... Would he just move on to someone else and target them for whatever slight he perceives, perhaps this time ending in someone's death? What are your thoughts on the tale brought here today then? I chose the tale of Tracy Morgan and Anthony Burstow because I was shocked at exactly just how little the law fell on the side of the victim back before the implementation of the Protection from Harassment Act 1997 which is 1996 for conviction for GBH of the mind led to. I mean, this was piss poor before, wasn't it? Disgraceful that people being terrorised should have had such little protection and have to suffer so much before anything could be done. It seemed that they were just glaring loopholes that people such as Burstow could exploit. And Tracy's heartfelt tale really did touch me when I first read it some years ago. I had the greatest empathy for her through her account and whilst I can't say that her tale had a happy ending because she had to live with the scars of the years that Burstow tormented her and even had a nervous breakdown following his life imprisonment. Much like Jill in the previous episode, she did bring positivity out of it. She admits that it made her into a stronger person. Burstow, or Hurdle, what on earth do you say about him? reportedly isn't suffering from any form of mental illness he's just twisted and obsessive i know it's a bit of an understatement there like isn't it but i find that so hard to get my head around that he doesn't need a checkup from the neck up bloody hell is all i can say today the laws concerning stalking have been codified as whilst most stalking behaviors would fall within section 7 of the 1997 act which states that References to harassing a person include alarming the person or causing the person distress. These provisions did not mention stalking by name and did not provide examples of behaviour which would be covered. Section 2 of the Act states that a person who pursues a course of conduct in breach of Section 1 is guilty of an offence, which is subject to a maximum penalty of six months' imprisonment or an unlimited fine or both, and is arrestable whereas Section 4 of the Act creates a more serious criminal offence of carrying out a course of conduct which puts people in fear of violence. This is an either-way offence, i.e. it can be tried either in the Magistrates' Court or indictment in the Crown Court. Now, the Protection of Freedoms Act 2012 amended the 1997 Act and created two new offences of stalking, There is stalking section 2A, which is pursuing a course of conduct which amounts to harassment and which also amounts to stalking, and stalking section 4A, involving fear of violence or serious alarm or distress. The offences came into force on the 25th of November 2012, bringing with them the maximum penalty for the section 2A offence of six months imprisonment and unlimited fine or both. 
Until April 2017, the maximum penalty for the more serious Section 4A offence was five years imprisonment or an unlimited fine, or both, but the maximum prison sentence was doubled to 10 years from the 3rd of April 2017 by the Policing and Crime Act of the same year. However, if the offence was racially or religiously aggravated, the most severe sanction will double from 7 to 14 years. Are these punishments enough though? According to recent findings from the 2019 Crime Survey for England and Wales, there were over 1.47 million victims of stalking alone in the past 12 months. Another statistic show that almost 1 in 5 women over the age of 16 have experienced stalking, as well as almost 1 in 10 men. It's not something that's going away anytime soon, and it does have the potential to lead to murder. Cases like the tragic deaths of Claire Bernal or Rana Faruqi may be in your minds. If not, they are two names that we shall meet at a future date here on the show. So what do you guys think then? I'd love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the episode, and there are several links within the episode show notes concerning the stalking laws that you can have a look through yourselves, a link to Tracy's own website where you can read her own powerful words, as well as a list of several helplines and organisations available to support anyone who finds themselves a victim. Now, it's not a word I really like, that victim, but it is apt here, of stalking or harassment. And I hope that isn't any of you guys listening in here either. It's about time for me to wrap up now and crack on with the next one here on The Enthusiast, which I'm going off to do right now. So all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys all good and safe times. Stay safe out there, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care, folks. Thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.